It's about a full day now that we've been plugging along with the in-breath and out-breath. Started last night and we're still at it. Are we? You know. What we've been doing is we've selected one object out of the entire universe. The fact that each and every one of us is breathing. We've taken that one object and we've attempted to give it exclusive attention. A rather ordinary, natural, simple, in many ways familiar object. Why? What's the point? Why do we come back to the breathing over and over and over and over again? Sarah took us through the Four Noble Truths last night. And now the question is, how can this practice of breath awareness bring those teachings to life. In the Buddhist approach to education, you begin with theory, conceptual education, doctrine, intellectual. You move on to reflection, where you reflect on what you've learned intellectually. And then there's realization through meditation. They all play their part. It's not advisable to set them up against each other. Like intellect is no good, meditation is good. We do a lot of thinking and it's very helpful to be given certain thoughts that go in the direction that's constructive for us as human beings. Presumably that's what Dharma thoughts do. They're pointing in a direction of freedom, wisdom. Wisdom, compassion. And if the Four Noble Truths had any convincing quality last night, that it sounded like something that an intelligent person could relate to, was practical, something for real people living in the real world, there's still the matter of how to do it And crucial to it is observation. Seeing, clear seeing in this approach, in the Buddhist teaching, it's clear seeing what sets us free. The relationship is actually a rather simple one. The assumption is, if it's still an assumption, if you see it enough times, it's not an assumption anymore, that much of our suffering has to do with ignorance. That is, we ignore the way things are. Particularly, we ignore the way things are for ourselves. And so, observation, mindfulness, whatever language you like, awareness, attention, is put forward as a means for correcting 
ignorance. That is, if by ignoring things we suffer a lot, it's a bit like stumbling around in a dark room and because you can't see, you bump into things and hurt yourself. Well, what if we turn on the light? Then we can see where there are chairs and tables and move through the room uh, without hurting ourselves. So what is being suggested is that if we ignore, if ignorance, ignoring, is what produces suffering, then paying attention can free us from that suffering. And so, as you probably know, those of you here for the first time, and some of you have been meditating with other forms or at other places, but it's probably clear to you now that at least in this method, attention is the whole thing. It's the core. Our ability to pay attention to our experience right here and right now. Everything else is dependent on that. The most beautiful theories and reasonings would just be like cardboard or straw. Without this capacity to observe. And so a lot of what we're learning, we're using the breath to develop that. To begin with, we focus on the breath as we bring the breath into focus. Perhaps we can uh, extend that to include our life. And that's what we'll talk a bit about tonight. In taking something as simple as the breath, isolating it and coming back to it time and time again, there are some benefits that come. And perhaps you're starting to see some. But let me hint at a few, and if you uh, haven't seen it yet or it's not convincing yet, perhaps it will be in the future if you continue this practice. First off, it's important to understand that if your mind has been wild, and from the discussions in the group, it's safe to say that you know that the mind is... Uh, wild, uh, that's not an occasion to get discour- for discouragement. In fact, that's actually what is called an attainment. In one of the schemes of practice in an ancient manual, the first attainment is attaining cascading mind. That is, you begin to see that the mind is like a waterfall. It's just wild. It's all over the place. Now, it's We didn't implant that in you when you came to IMS. We all brought that here. We brought it right into this room. It's been following us around. So all it's, what the attainment, you may not think much of it, but it actually is the beginning, is to begin to see that this is the mind that we're uh, doing things with, running businesses, raising families, leading whole countries, It's a mind that's quite wild, inconsistent, contradictory, etc., etc. You all know it. We all know it's quite vivid. So it's an accomplishment to begin to see, oh, this is the way the mind is. Now, at this point, and I'm speaking especially those of you who are new, is a, a fork in the road. You can a- either take that seeing of how wild the mind is as uh, a sign of the, uh, how difficult things are worse than you imagined, You had some romantic notion about meditation, but now you're really seeing what you're up against. And you can get discouraged and take that fork in the road, take it as a defeat. 
perhaps feed certain pessimism that you may have a bit of anyway. But the other fork in the road is just to see it. Oh, this is the way it is. And to understand that help is available. We're not helpless. People have faced the same wild mind for thousands of years. It was not any different thousands of years ago. If you're human, it seems to be the condition. Part of that condition is to have a mind that's wild. A bit like a dog running after a bone. I remember once wondering when I was watching one dog run after this plastic bone over and over and over again. It was sort of fake meat on the plastic, you know, plastic meat on the plastic bone. And I just go, why does a dog do it? And I wonder from an awakened mind's point of view, why do we do it? Why do we keep running after these same thoughts over and over and over? Are they that wonderful? Repeating the same conversation, rehearsing what we're going to say and then what he'll say and I'll say and she'll say and then uh, a grudge that about something that happened 20 years ago. You know, just listen to what's in the mind. So little of it takes us to peace. And yet we go running after it over and over and over and over again. You could say it's an exercise in futility. Because not a whole lot comes out of it. Well, if we've begun to see that, that's just fine. Why, why chew on a plastic bone? Let's get something real, for goodness sakes. And so one of the things that happens is that by coming back enough times, especially if the coming back uh, is gentle and graceful, without blame, without judgment, so it doesn't become tedious, the mind does start to become more tame. And you start to taste some peace. And you find out, isn't that interesting, just simply sitting here and breathing, if there's any continuity at all, it seems to produce something worthwhile. We start to feel a certain calmness. We call it fulfillment, a steadiness of mind. And it seems to be worth the exchange that we're making. We're trading in all of that exciting stuff that the mind concocts, our story, for just this in-breath and this out-breath. But I don't think we're getting gypped. Quite the contrary. And so one of the things that we're contributing to by practicing uh, coming back to the breath, and there are other objects that could be used, of course, but we're using the breath, is that we're um, helping the mind become stable, clear. And there's also a certain joy that we taste. And this is not a small point either. If you keep practicing just the, this, this breath awareness practice, we're not into vipassana yet. Just the practice of samadhi, calming and steadying the mind. There's a certain joy that comes. It's, it's lawful. It's for everyone. If you can make your attention a little bit more continuous, you start to experience a certain joy and peace. Once you start to taste this, That is, there's a certain joy that comes from a concentrated mind. It can actually be quite extraordinary. It is not enlightenment, it's not liberation, and it is also invaluable. 
Because one of the benefits of tasting this joy and peace is you begin to realize that it didn't come to you because someone gave you a promotion or said you were handsome or beautiful or brilliant or suddenly you're on the cover of some famous magazine or you got invited to a conference and you're going to be on TV. Uh, nothing in particular has happened except that you've been paying attention to your own consciousness. And so you see that there's a source of happiness that is not dependent on the external world. Now, isn't that interesting? We go back to the Four Noble Truths where uh, it's obvious one of the main sources, according to that teaching, is this running after, running away from, the craving. Remember, there is suffering. It comes about because of attachment to craving. Craving has a desperate quality to it, as if there's n the way we are is not very good. It's a big hole, which must be filled by something, a person, food, anything, a book, money. It's endless as to what we think will fill that hole. Well, what if we find <clears throat> there is a source of fulfillment, a kind of happiness that has nothing to do with whether the world approves of us or doesn't approve of us? that we can sit quietly and contemplate being alive, because that's what breathing is. And suddenly we feel a lot better. And then when we unfold our legs and enter into life, somehow our actions and our speech and our appreciation of nature and people and so forth is all the richer for having calmed down a little bit, for having given it a rest, this mad race, after all these concoctions of the mind. So that's a benefit that comes from it. Another benefit is, uh, these are all slightly different ways of saying the same thing. You know, our <clears throat> a lot of suffering is because the mind is so complicated. And perhaps we live in one of the most, or for all I know, the most complicated period that humans have known, in, at least in our hit recorded history. It's very complicated to be a human today. And we often seek complicated medicines for our complicated maladies. What's being suggested here is that the best medicine is simple. Simplicity is the medicine. Not to find something we're already suffering from complexity. Something wonderful happens when we can, at least temporarily, allow all of that to go into abeyance and just sit peacefully and breathe. We begin to learn that perhaps simplicity is uh, valuable. Again, of course, the real simplicity is not just doing one thing. It's more an attitude of mind. You can have a very uh, rich life and be simple inside. The main simplicity is inside, but it's a beginning. And I think it's a medicine that in this period we all need very much. Things have become too fast, too complicated. Things change too quickly. It doesn't seem as if it suits us as humans. Everything gets outmoded. You just get a nice brand new computer and now there's a new one that people are lining up for, breaking down doors to get this new program. Boy, I hope it delivers.
Something else happens. Although this is when you are able to stay with the breathing, and when you're able to stay with the breathing, that means you're not with your, the productions of your mind. You're not feeding them. They weaken a little bit. Although you don't uproot your problems in a samadhi practice, insight is for that. Vipassana is about uprooting problems. Nonetheless, the time that you spend breathing in and breathing out this way is time not spent nourishing greed, hatred, and delusion, fear, anxiety, worry, and all that. So that tendency, which we tend to uh, feed so much of the time, is now weakened at least a little bit. Okay, so there's some value in what we've been doing. And a lot of it has been uh, from the Four Noble Truths training in right samadhi. The ability of the mind to be steady, to stick to an object. Training in right mindfulness. You have to notice what's happening. You have to notice that your mind is distracted, that you're not with the breath. That requires mindfulness. Right effort. It takes effort a certain amount of energy, balanced, well-modulated energy, to bring attention back to the breath once again. We wander away, and the reason we know enough to bring it back, and we need the energy to do that, is because of right intention. That is, in the context of this practice, samadhi practice, right intention is turning the mind towards what you decided to turn it towards, the breathing. And so the mind understands that it wants to direct its, the flow of energy. It's not just going to be uh, blown all over the place. And it, uh, not only uh, th- that intention informs the use of the energy which is brought to the breath, and more and more we're able to keep it there. And so you have a lot of factors in play, even the ethical factors that were referred to. While you're absorbed in the breathing, you're not killing anyone, you're not stealing, there's no sexual misconduct, unless there's something going on here that we're not aware of. You're not lying. And again, you're not on intoxicants. So it keeps us out of trouble. If you keep out of trouble, that is, if you... Uh, you could say the ethical training is getting your house in order. Uh, getting your house in order is so obviously fundamental to some of the projects that many of us want. We want to go on to enlightenment, to all kinds of extraordinary things, without getting our house in order. How can that be? There's no foundation. We're going to keep tripping on roller skates that are on the living room floor and falling. Now, as the mind does that as the mind learns to do that. That is, it uh, it restrains itself from speaking and acting in ways that hurt, hurt other people, and then finally, of course, hurt us as well. That contributes to the calmness and steadiness of the mind. Some years ago in practicing, there was a fellow who was sitting on a cushion next to me, and he literally fell off his cushion. 
you could feel his tension. His tension had to do with the fact that he was wanted for extortion and kidnapping in Canada. And he had made his way to this meditation center and merely wanted to become a Buddha while he was afraid at any moment the police would break the door down. Now, those are not the optimum conditions for developing samadhi. He had it backwards. Okay, so now what? Um, many of you are very new and we don't have much time. We move into um, another aspect of the practice which I would like to at least sketch out for you. Uh, you may not feel ready to do what I'm suggesting, especially those of you who are rather new to the practice. That's fine. At least you will hopefully leave here understanding that there's more to the practice than concentrating on the breathing, as valuable as that is, and I hope I've made it clear that it is helpful. It gives us a kind of refuge, the breath. Sometimes we just need to take refuge, and when you develop this samadhi, sometimes it's like getting a good night's rest. You can drop into a very concentrated state, refresh yourselves, and then when you come out of it, you can deal with problems, and you have a much better chance of um, your response is being adequate. But we're not in wisdom per se yet. Another set of instructions, and uh, we've been following the breath, and one way to extend this anapanasati, which I couldn't possibly go into in great detail, there are 16 contemplations. But basically, what this method is that we're using has to do with uh, coming to know our, our body and mind. Using the breath as an anchor to help develop calm and concentration and then to help stabilize our attention. While breathing, we come to know the body. While breathing, we come to know feelings. While breathing, we come to know the various mind states that visit us. And then finally, Vipassana itself. While breathing, there's the beginnings of discernment, of insight, of seeing deeply into what's happening to us. I'd like to make time to take one aspect of the Four Noble Truths and to go into it with some thoroughness, but I want to leave you with a practical set of instructions as well. I might have to go a little bit over. Um, would you be heartbroken if this cut into just about five minutes or so? Okay. We can extend it the other way so the discussion is not shortened. What you can now do there's a condensed version of this sutra, which is used in Thailand, and I, I personally have found it to be extremely effective. First, calm the mind concentrated, as we've been doing. When the mind settles down a bit, that is, there's a bit more peace, there's more continuity in your ability to attend to the breath. Thoughts thin out, thoughts that are there have less power over you. There's a, a calmness and a peace that you feel. The breath starts to flow more freely in and out. 
there's a beginnings of a sense of some well-being. At that point, what you can do is uh, change into a rather different mode of attention. You're still with the breathing, but you loosen your grip on the breathing. Instead of attending to it as an, ap- as a, an exclusive object, while breathing, we now stay in a state of openness. Openness which has no agenda whatsoever. So we're just sitting and breathing. And the kind of attention I'm talking about is much more comprehensive, global. It's more like a wide-angle lens than zoom lens, which is what we've been doing. So as you sit and breathe, you're sitting in the middle of your experience. You're just being yourself. You're breathing anyway. It's not anything you've imported. And as you sit and breathe, you become aware of your life as it is in that moment. That's it. And what that would look and feel and sound and taste like is just the way your life is in a given moment. It might be sitting and breathing and perhaps there, you, there's silence. Typically, you will say nothing's happening. That's not true. What's happening is quiet. So while you're sitting and breathing, you become aware of silence itself. You just listen to the silence. And then some sounds come up of birds or a car, and you hear that because it's there. They come and they go. The pain in the knee then, by now perhaps familiar, arises. And it's not like you have to think things through. Life tells us what to attend to. If the pain is severe, that's where your awareness is. Because that's what's prominent, predominant, vivid, distinct. So as you breathe in and breathe out, you're aware of whatever is there. And if it's discomfort in the body, then you're aware of that. If it's a particular mood, then you're aware of that. If it's boredom, you're aware of that. If there's great joy and peace, you're aware of being joyful and at peace. If there's suffering of any kind, you're aware of that. Now this, so the method, in, at least in words, is simple. You really can't do this second aspect of the instructions with any degree of fulfillment unless there's some calm in the mind. And there's a practical test. If you attempt to do it and the mind is not up to it, what will happen is you'll, you'll drown in stuff. You won't be able to bring things into focus. You'll find yourself thinking a lot, psychologizing, analyzing, and so forth. That's a clue to go back to the breath in a more exclusive way. And then if sometimes all you need is a few breaths and the mind settles down again and then once again you sit in this open way where nothing in particular is supposed to happen. You're just uh, learning how to be yourself. That's one way to put it. And the attitude that's very, very helpful is a phrase, a few phrases that no doubt you've heard. Beginner's mind, don't know mind, naivete, innocence, freshness. That is, just sit without any notions about what's supposed to happen or what you're doing or time. But of course, even though I say that and you may, it may sound sensible, the mind will still start calculating again. To sum it all up, what we're doing is we're learning how to give the calculating mind a rest. 
we've been emphasizing to allow the breathing to flow naturally, to surrender to the breath. On a longer retreat, you would have heard it many more times, but I think we've said it at least sometimes. We're learning how not to control. For many of us, that's very difficult. Life without managing something, controlling something, directing something is almost unthinkable. And so it's a new art that we have to learn. How to leave things alone, to let it be. And if it's difficult because much of your life is management, calculating, and then following through, that's understandable. Be patient. And it's not that you have to give that up. But this is another art that can uh, very beautifully complement what you already know. And that's the ability to do nothing. To just sit peacefully, quietly, and do nothing. And trust in life. Believe me, there'll be no shortage of things happening. So we sit and we breathe. And if the calculating mind comes up, we see it. We hear it. I want this and I don't want that. Where does this lead to? A preoccupation with time? Whatever. What I'd like to do in the remaining time, well, excuse me, before that, just so you have a practical beginning, the practice from here on in for you can be uh, in a typical sitting, sitting down and starting with the breath in an exclusive way. For those of you who are rather new to the practice, probably the best use of your time is to continue to work with the breath in an exclusive way a lot. Please do not consider that kindergarten. It isn't. Because out of a strong foundation in calm, in samadhi, comes the ability to really do what we're talking about. If you try to do it too soon, um, not much is going to come of it. Then again, you don't have to be perfect. Both can grow together. The quality of the mind, right samadhi, can grow. And when the mind seems relatively peaceful, if it can uh, be, uh, keep up with a changing field of objects, because remember now, although the breath is our anchor, we're open now to a changing field of objects. The mind keeps changing. Moods come and go. Sounds come and go. Bodily condition keeps changing and so forth. If you can keep up with some of that, not running after it, but staying awake and feeling it, experiencing it, seeing what it's about. Then try it. Jump in. Don't be afraid. Get your feet wet. And if you find that you're getting lost, then just go back to the breath and fine-tune your attention again, maybe just for a few breaths, or finish up the sitting that way. Now, what I'd like to do is, in the remaining time, is talk about the first noble truth, one as, an aspect of the first noble truth, which is uh, the way it's phrased by the Buddha. Uh, we have an assignment. It's a kind of a lesson to be learned in the first noble truth. And that lesson is, there is dukkha. It's not, I have dukkha, poor me, I've got to get rid of it. As much as you may think and feel that, that's fine. We can't stop ourselves from thinking and feeling that. But the contemplation is to begin to see there is dukkha. Unsatisfactoriness, suffering, torment, anguish, whatever. It can be very, very small. 
can be just reaching for your favorite product in the supermarket and it's not there. Okay, now the main thing that we will face and when you open the field up and you now sit and breathe and you're now receptive to whatever turns up is probably you will have to face what it seems many of us human beings are up against. Hollywood seems to know all about it. There was a recent study of what were the dominant phrases and they, they surveyed many, many films. What are the kind, what phrases that people utter in films? And they found the most popular one, the most frequent one that was said the most was, let's get out of here. <laughs> so people are constantly getting out of somewhere. Why are you laughing? Because you recognize it, don't you? It's a truism. I'd rather be golfing. I'd rather be fishing. I'd rather be playing tennis. I'd rather be listening to my Walkman than have to deal with this reality that's in front of me. Somehow, wherever we are, couldn't be the right place to be. And whoever we're with, there must be someone better than them. And when you narrow it down, when we come to our own mind, it's the same principle. Let's get out of here. We don't a lot like a lot of what turns up in the mind. How do I get away from this mood, from this? I'm a nice person. And suddenly Adolf Hitler emerges in consciousness. <laughs> and a, an image gets shattered, just falls to the floor, broken in pieces. Well, if you sit in this open way, that's what happens. Because it's an invitation. If you just sit and breathe and you have no agenda, what do you think is going to turn up? What's there is going to turn up. It's just a, a truism. Stuff that's below the threshold of consciousness is now going to say, oh, okay, it's all right. Let's come on out now. They don't have any more rules about what's supposed to be there. <laughs> okay, now, when it comes up, are we able to, to work with it in a way that is fulfilling or fruitful. Let me um, think of any, we're in the, the first noble truth, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, suffering. And if you like, put in your mind any particular version of that, whether it's fear or anguish or perhaps fear that comes from competition, you know, wanting to be successful at something. But of course, people who are caught in competitive worlds are always afraid because everyone's competing with everyone. And there are always winners and losers, and no one wins all the time. But whatever it is for you, let's, I'm going to use fear, but it doesn't have to be fear for you. Just put in whatever you would like, and I'd like to walk us through this in five minutes. There is dukkha. Okay, now how do we come to really see that? What comes up would be something in the mind and in the body, very often powerful. Fear can be quite powerful. How do we relate to it? What, is, what does it mean to really observe it, to observe fear? What does that really mean? Uh, to begin with, when we observe anything, and I mean in our practice, it's, inter it's uh, entangled with our psychology. Whatever your psychological tendencies are, likes and dislikes, fears, and your history, conditioning, and so forth, when we look at something, it's inevitably entangled with our particular psychology. So we're not seeing so clearly. 
Everything's mixed in with our history. The shadow of the past is there, and we think we're seeing the present, but sometimes not so much. That starts to clear up after a while, but there's still a self-consciousness about being an observer. There's a very separate feeling of being an, an observer, someone who's observing this fear, this dukkha. That's unavoidable, too, because we're trying to learn a skill. We want to be good at it. We're self-conscious. Finally, the practice ripens into uh, the, the falling away of the observer. There's no separation. That's the key. There's intimate contact with the form of dukkha, fear, or what have you. That means there's nothing between you and the dukkha and the fear. Now, what can get between us can be very, very subtle. How do we do let's get out of here? Psychologically, in our own, inside our mind. Here are a number of ways. One, we just repress it. Some fear comes up and we can feel the stirrings and we just squash it. We put a big rock on top of it. That's a pretty obvious one. Or we get lost in it, drown in it. There's not an intimate observation of it because we're too busy being terrified. We've identified with it and it becomes uh, real suffering. That's, that's what we know. We know that. Or there are all these escapes which seem, look like we're dealing with the problem, but they're still from this point of view, the, the point of view of pure observation, pure, clear, straight, simple observation, accurate. It, there still escapes. One is, of course, do other things. Get lost, absorbed in all kinds of other things, food, books, movies, anything will do. Even Buddhist ideas. Just read lots of books about what the Buddha said and find out absolutely nothing about you. You'll know everything about the Buddha and zero about yourself. The Buddha's crying if you do that. Tears are rolling down his cheeks. That's not what he wanted you to do. He put these teachings out so you could get to know yourself. He may have solved his problems. Let's hope he did. I'm sure he did. <laughs> I don't want to weaken your resolve. This. <laughs> Absolutely positive. <laughs> but if he solved his problems, it doesn't solve ours. He's just a very kind and generous guy, that's all. He's saying, hey, come on, you can do it too. Then we get into much more refined escapes, like putting up with. We have many mind states that are awful for us, and we put up with them for years. We call it coping. We postpone it. We just refuse to deal with things. Years can go by. We know exactly what to do. We don't do it. We betray ourselves. So finally, it's just we're forced to do something. But all of that's an escape, too. Then a very intricate one in Cambridge. This is one of the most popular because it's a very intellectually gifted community. Everyone's very well educated, intensely motivated to learn and so forth. In that sense, a very interesting place for me anyway. People will develop brilliant explanations of what is happening to them. Really brilliant. Uh, perhaps based on Freud or even the Buddha. Uh, exquisite and having a certain amount of fulfillment. The, the intellectual explanation has fulfillment in it. And that's the problem. The fulfillment blinds us 
we think we've really dealt with it, whereas really the explanation is between us and the problem. So there are all these different things that can come between us and intimate contact with dukkha, with fear, or you put in whatever you'd like. So the practice is learning how to, in a sense, be naked, to allow the fear to fully emerge, to give it the space and the room so they can fully emerge, can be seen. Now, in order to see it, you need adequate capacity to attend. That's why the samadhi is so important. If the mind is unwavering, which can, you can develop a mind that is very, very steady, that's what we're doing. If you keep doing it, your mind will become much more steady. Then the mind can be adequate as it faces the dukkha. The full attention of, to the dukkha has a, a quality uh, of uh, non, there no con- concepts in it. It has nothing to do with the past. It has nothing to do with any theory, including Buddhist. What it is, is a, a direct perception, a direct unmediated experience of whatever it is. Now, when there's that level of attention, one of the most important things, that it's very, very healing. We be, in that moment, you can learn a lot. You also see into the nature of the, imper- of the fear, and you see that it's impermanent. But you see that law of impermanence uh, with enough depth so that it affects your uh, relationship to it. It affects it in terms of um, letting go. I think was mentioned last night. If you begin to see that whatever it is you're attending to is impermanent, and impermanent things lack self, a self is not impermanent. When you see that impermanence, it more and more makes no sense to grasp onto it, either to push it away or to hold it, because it has a life of its own. It's something that arises and passes away. And after a while, enough watching of this law, which is as real as the law of gravity, we stop fighting with the law, we start honoring it, and life becomes just much easier. So now there's a capacity to look into the fear, anguish, dukkha, whatever form. We begin to see uh, deeply into it. We begin to see that it is insubstantial, but really see that. Now, if you see into your fear and see that it's insubstantial, it's no longer the same fear. The reason the fear has so much power over us is that we impute a solidity to it. We give it the strength that then victimizes us. We're doing the whole thing. We imprison ourselves and we can also liberate ourselves from ourselves. It's weird, but we're doing it all to ourselves. The mind is our potentially our best friend. It's also potentially our worst enemy. So as the capacity to see deeply into what's happening develops, the seeing of the relationship, the attachment, cause and effect, we see how attachment to craving produces the suffering. It falls away, there's cessation. There's either a momentary where there's a, uh, a certain period of uh, the absence of any suffering, which is a, a fine, 
Or when it's deep enough, we call it enlightenment or nirvana. Now, what's very important here is that when there is that kind of flame of attention, the attention is very strong now, and it comes out of practice, it doesn't drop from the sky. And that attention is directed to the fear. When it's that steady, there's one element in the situation that's missing that makes all the difference. That's what turns it around. Do you know what element that is? It's me. So long as attention is wavering, is faltering, is uh, weak, what happens is this tendency to appropriate everything as being me or mine comes in. So it becomes my fear. Poor me. I'm terrified. We identify with it. In the identification, we create the problem. When attention is on fire, when there's attention is really steady, there's no me in it. There's no, uh, there's no one who's identifying with, with, with the fear. There's just fear. There is just dukkha. We see it. So the liberation comes from that. Can you see the link between our practice and the doctrine? Both are important. They need each other. I guess to conclude, what we have to learn is, well, I'm going to make a stronger statement. Obviously, you don't have to agree with me. In fact, everything that's been said here is for you to test with your own life. I can, I can certainly say this is true in my life. There came a point where I realized there was no escape from my suffering. There is no escape. What I pointed out earlier were escapes. Repression is an attempt to escape it. In other words, let's get out of here. Even brilliant explanations. We don't really want to touch it. We, have, we put conceptual clothing around the experience so we don't have to fully feel it and see it. Or we interpret it from the past through concepts. And those concepts are a barrier. It's not intimate knowing. If you could see, this is the best way I know how to put it. It made such a difference for me. I hope it's helpful to you. If you can see that all of that energy that's spent trying to escape from what you're afraid of, from your dukkha, all of that energy that is spent doing that is wasted energy. That is, there is no escape. And that if that energy is coherently marshaled, and instead of being squandered, dispersed through all the different escapes, is used to, to look and to learn, you have all the energy you could need, all the power you need. You can really face suffering. You can really face fear. You can face death. And that energy comes from letting go of an of a, uh, ineffective way of dealing with our suffering. It doesn't work. But we have to see it. Once we see it, it becomes much more difficult to use our time that way. Escapes become like a false note. It just becomes harder and harder to do it. Put more positively, there's a certain joy and even a dignity 
in meeting your life, meeting the, even the difficult aspects of your life, face to face. Only now, the energy that was squandered in hiding, running, etc., you now have available for you to see. And it's the seeing that gets us free. Okay. Okay, a clinic for the new yogis, right? It's not a clinic, it's... And the rest of us have to walk and stuff. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.